This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. Welcome to today's episode of Passport to Everywhere. I'm Alyssa Biggs-Bradley. Today I'm joined with the CEO of Harley-Davidson, Jochen Zeitz, to explore Segera, one of the top luxury eco-lodges in Kenya. And stay tuned for my tips on what to pack for a safari. But first, I thought I'd share results from our Indigari Sentiment Survey and tell you what the top travel insights are for 2024 from our Indigari members. It's time for Indigari Insights. Indigari recently conducted our Fall 2023 Travel Sentiment Survey. Today, I thought I'd share some of the results with you, as some of the insights may surprise you. We polled nearly 2,000 luxury travelers about their opinions on the current travel landscape, and the results are in, with travel returning to or exceeding pre-pandemic levels within the Indigari community. There continues to be pent-up travel demand and a desire to make up for lost time. And even with the challenges of airline understaffing, lost bags, and higher prices causing more frustration, more crowds, and more delays, our community is interested in traveling more and for longer than last year in 2024. In fact, 53% are planning more trips in 2024 than in 2023, and more than 40% of travelers also plan to spend more on hotels, airfare, special experiences, and restaurants in the year ahead. So where are travelers headed next? Well, next year, 91% plan on traveling within the United States, followed closely by Europe at 89%, along with the Caribbean, Asia, Mexico, Canada, Africa, and the Middle East. We also asked if they could go anywhere right now, what type of trip they would take. The top answers were Japan and Italy, or safari, villa rental, yacht charter, or cruise. We also polled our trip designers about what they're seeing. And besides big-ticket trips to New Zealand, Africa, and Japan, the most requested regions for both 2023 and 2024 are France, Italy, and Western Europe, as well as an increase in trips on safari, specifically to destinations like Rwanda, and to places like Japan, with a great interest in Tokyo. The most requested cities of all are Paris, London, and Rome. And when it comes to getting there, given airline challenges, such as frequent delays and cancellations, not to mention all the lost bags and increased costs, it's no surprise that flights and flying in general were the greatest source of frustration for travelers surveyed this fall, and the top reason for canceling trips planned in recent months. So the best ways to avoid the hassles of air travel right now? Follow the advice of our community. Book direct flights and avoid layovers whenever possible. Avoid crowds by minimizing flight times or travel more during off-seasons to more off-the-beaten-path destinations. Of course, you should also be sure to try to pack carry-on only and take advantage of TSA pre-check, clear, and global entry to speed through airports. For more of the latest travel trends and for in-depth report on all of our survey results, head to Indigari.com. That was Indigari Insights. Today, I'm speaking with the CEO of Harley-Davidson, Jochen Zeitz, about how luxury travel can serve as a vehicle for change. And you won't want to miss my safari packing tips. We'll be right back. 
passport to everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley will continue. Listen to new episodes Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. Experience life without borders. You're listening to Passport Passport to Everywhere. Everywhere. Here's your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley. Today I'm speaking with one of the world's most inspiring people, and that's not just my subjective opinion. In 2016, Jochen Zeitz was actually listed as such by the Scandinavian Um magazine. Then, in 2019, he was named one of the 44 people changing the way we travel by Condé Nast Traveler. Currently the president, CEO, and chairman of the board for Harley-Davidson, Jochen was once Germany's youngest CEO. Appointed at just 30 years old, he was responsible for turning the nearly bankrupt shoe brand Puma into the mega success it is today. He co-wrote The Manager and the Monk, which has been translated into 15 languages, and he's received countless awards. He's very clearly an agent of change in the business world. But truly, what excites me most about his resume, if I can call it that, is his passion for Africa and his work in conservation and sustainability, particularly in Kenya and South Africa. In 2014, Jochen co-founded The B Team with Sir Richard Branson. The team is made up of 31 of the world's top business leaders, and the initiative is to have them promote socially and environmentally conscious business practices globally. He also founded the Zeitz Foundation, which is a nonprofit dedicated to supporting the four C's, conservation, community, culture, and commerce. In 2013, he opened Segera Retreat, the luxury lodge in the heart of Laikipia, Kenya. Sitting on 50,000 acres of Kenyan savanna, the lodge blends adventure, stylish comfort, and of course, conservation. And in 2017 came the opening of the nonprofit Zeitz Museum of Contemporary Art in Cape Town, South Africa. I could go on and on, and clearly Jochen's life defies conventional boundaries, which is why I'm excited to have him here with me today to tell us how he's created new business models in tourism and to learn more about his work turning luxury eco-lodges into sustainable methods for good. So let's dive in. You were born and raised in Germany and then were the youngest CEO of Puma. Um, how did you find yourself in, in that position and were you always interested in entrepreneurship? Well, I actually wanted to be a medical doctor first and foremost. So I started uh, pre- prepping for medical school, went to Italy, started there for a while and then sort of serendipity headed that uh, I ended up in business, uh, something that, you know, nobody in my family really knew anything about. And um, I had my first job then in New York City, came back to Germany and uh, and uh, a headhunter recruited me to, to Puma saying that this would be a great opportunity for a, a young manager to make a, make a mark early in, in his career. And I jumped and uh, it was a pretty dire situation of the company. I worked there for two and a half years uh, through three CEOs, which is a lot. And uh, and then I became the CEO, long story short. So that's my journey. And when I was 29, uh, j- just about to turn 30, I was asked if I would uh, take the top job. And I said, obviously, that's exciting. I'd love to do that. But let's wait a couple of weeks until I turn 30. So it doesn't look as, as, as bad. Um, and yeah, and then the rest is history, really. Um, and, and I want to get to Africa, but I want to give the listeners a little bit of your background. So, um, you, you did that and obviously very successfully 
brought Puma to a whole other level and and sold it and were then part of caring. Um, and now you've done something very different. You are the CEO um, of Harley Davidson. Uh, can you talk about how that happened? <laughs> sure. Well, I was uh, 18 years a CEO of Puma. Uh, I, I'd say accomplished more than I ever dreamt of achieving. Uh, had an incredible time. It was hard work, right? As you can imagine, it was this tiny little company and, and a brand that wasn't the most desirable at all, to say the least. And uh, and it, it it took a great team and a huge amount of effort to turn the company around. But, you know, we went from record to record year in, in terms of growing the brand uh, in a desirable ma manner, making it lifestyle and fashion, uh, in addition to being a, a sports brand. And uh, and so that was an eight, incredible 18-year journey. And uh, after that, I decided that I've been there, done this successfully and couldn't really, couldn't get any better. And I wanted to focus more on, um, you know, my other passions. And there was art and uh, and conservation, um, which led me to uh, to co-found the Museum of Contemporary Art Africa, Side Smoker, in Cape Town, and uh, also bought a by a big chunk of land in uh, in Laikipia, Kenya, uh, fifty thousand acres that I wanted to really uh, use to sh showcase how uh, tourism can contribute positively to the environment and 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 bringing a, a previous cattle ranch to life and bring biodiversity back um and so that was the focus and then 20 and i've been on i've been on the board of harley davidson for 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 several years we let go of the ceo in in february 2020 and uh, it was just the beginning of the pandemic and my board turned to me and said hey Jochen, this uh, wouldn't that be an interesting challenge for you and uh well uh, here here i am uh, three and a half years later uh, i love harley davidson i love riding and uh, i love riding in nature and uh, so it's a passion of mine i started riding as a 16 year old and harley davidson is one of those more incredible and most most uh, extraordinary brands in the world so can't really say no to that yeah and so that's been now a couple of years that you've been the ceo and and i'm curious if you can sort of either draw parallels to what you did at puma um in terms of of changing the brand or is this a totally different strategy and if so sort of what what's your vision well it's a different strategy because puma was while it was a recognized brand name it had no product it was totally undesirable it was very german centric uh it it wasn't really uh, expanding into other markets including the us where all um uh, where all trends were, were were being set in sport at the time uh, there was nothing lifestyle about it uh, now I turn to harley it's the opposite it's one of the most iconic if not the most iconic brand certainly in the motorcycle industry it is a lifestyle brand it is a lifestyle it's not just about the product incredible product that harley has harley is the, the undisputed market leader in the big bike segment and it has an incredible following you know throughout the world so it's a very different perspective and uh, you know it is really a community of of riders that come together and to enjoy riding um while you obviously come together to do sports as well there's nothing like uh, you know harley riders that uh, that uh, you know celebrate uh, riding and have a passion for riding and that uh, are joining a quite extraordinary community and so how do you move that forward or what are the challenges that you see 
for the brand? Well, you know, we just celebrated our 120th anniversary and uh, that's been a, a long history through ups and downs, just like any brand. And, uh, you know, we have fantastic product. We are launching new product every year. Uh, we, we are reaching new potential riders. So, uh, you know, we have a big riding community, but we we got to always make sure that there are new, new folks coming into the sport. So energizing ridership keeping keep people riding and getting new new folks into the sport is 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 very important to us so um you know that's the key right revitalizing uh the the, the those who may have stopped riding and, and energizing those who haven't even think, thought about riding um because once you ride and experience it uh, you're kind of hooked for life it has a lot of benefits um in riding you know it opens it's 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 adventurous for sure but because it free, frees your mind and uh, you know when, when I go and ride I, I don't think of anything but riding and it's, it's a nice relaxation uh, while you are being focused uh, at the same time. And and how are you thinking about um, sort of the, the electric bikes and um, and how that will change riding? Well, we, as a company, as a brand that's been around 120 years, you have to think ahead uh, in in decades. And I've I've I'm, I've always done that in my business life. Uh, while you are CEO for a period of time, you always have to say, what are the mega trends? What's happening in the world long term? And electrification is something that obviously we've now seen hap happening and coming to a tipping point in the auto industry. And it'll find its way into um, into motorcycles at, at some point in time. We decided to launch a separate brand that is also listed at the New York Stock Exchange, like Hawk, like Harley Davidson, uh, in order to uh, drive the electrification of the sport. But that is um, you know important because one day we also have to consider Harley as an electric motorcycle um, for many different reasons. But we chose the path of a different and separate brand that's part of the lineage and part of the family of Harley Davidson. Uh, to spare that the the electrification of the two wheel space. Uh, and then I I'd love to get into the B team and um and how that came about with Sir Richard Branson. What was your sort of philosophy and impetus behind that? Well, we both believe that uh, entrepreneurialism and business per se has a huge impact on the on the world right i mean uh, the, the economic driver is business and as such it has an enormous power and it should use its power to benefit uh, you know everybody uh, its employees its stakeholders per se and uh, and we felt that there were things that needed to happen uh, where we could all learn from each other to you know to to uh, improve the way business is being done uh, and not just think short term profit maximization but really thinking long term just as we talked about electrification of the sport you have to have a long term horizon of you know what what what's happening uh, you know climate change is is a huge issue that needs to be addressed as an example there are so social issues around the world and business through employment and through engagement uh, in, in in its communities uh, and obviously through business operating in that needs to operate in a healthy environment uh, you have a responsibility at the same time as you have an opportunity in, and through the B team we, we are bringing business leaders together that uh, think uh, think the same way um, you know take Harley as an example right it's a community there's a, a huge positive social aspect of riding 
and and that's that's something that uh, makes Harley very special compared to others. We live in a very divided uh, world. How can we bring people together? And the sport of riding is exactly that. It uh, doesn't matter where you come from, what you think, what you believe in, who you vote for. Once you're a rider, you're a rider. That's a huge social benefit for everybody uh, in, a, in a world that, uh, as we say, united we ride. Uh, it needs much more you know, integration rather than separation. That's just one example. And every business can define its own impact, uh, not just from a financial point of view, but from a brand, from a company point of view. A sports company then has you know, different uh, objectives, um, but at the same time can contribute to safeguarding uh, the interests of its stakeholders. And so I'm curious, when you bring business leaders together and they're part of a team, how does making, uh, sort of achieving outcomes or agreeing on goals or achieving goals differ when you're in a team structure than when you're CEO of the company? Well, you know, Leaders of the B team, they've all been accomplished in their respective fields and they have ideas from different angles. And, you know, it's consensus building at the end of the day, but we come together for, for, for the greater good in a way um, for our own business, but also collectively. And uh, and so, you know, we, we, we define through the leadership of our CEO, uh, uh, we, we define the initiatives and ideas that we all want to get behind. And that's a consensus process, really. Can you point to specific achievements or challenges that you've faced as a team? Um, well, look, uh, I think a challenge that we know today is that all of us need to contribute to, to let's say, a better world. It's a big, big, big sentence to say for a better world, but we all need a healthy environment. We need a healthy society. And I think no matter what you believe in, I think that brings everybody together. And unfortunately, the world has become more and more divided. So how can we contribute as a team to a more uh, unified message where we're all pulling in the same direction rather than against each other? And I think that talking about challenges that in the currently is uh, is a challenge because the, the nomenclature and the approach that you know people use uh, doesn't bring people together necessarily uh, and and that's something we're working on to make sure that this is not an exclusive but it's a truly inclusive approach yeah so how many members are are, are there on the b team now and do you see it expanding um i think leaders i actually have to double check but i think we're over 30 now okay so i i going to the better world is a great segue into sagara um your lodge in kenya and you mentioned having, you know, buying it with the idea of being able to demonstrate the positive power of tourism. But first, I'm curious about your relationship with Africa, because I know you I've been to the Zeitz. I've been to, I've been lucky to go to both Segera and the Zeitz Mocha, which is amazing. But I'm curious how you first discovered Africa, how you fell in love with it, what drew you to it? Yeah, I mean, I always had a passion for America as a young kid, and I had a passion for Africa. So, you know, as a, as a young kid, I was watching Westerns and was fascinated by the Wild West uh, growing up in Germany. And at the same time, I watched uh, Professor Chimek uh, after the news uh, in on German television, bringing, you know, talking about the Serengeti and Africa and uh, wildlife, wild animals. And that fascinated me too. And somehow those, you know, two things kind of created or my passion for 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 America for the US and for for Africa 
you know, I, I had my, I started in, in the US, I had my first job in the US and I went to Africa in 1989 for the first time and really just fell in love. What, and I already knew I would fall in love, but I, I, I decided that I would make uh, Africa my home. And then fast forward 13 years, uh, you know, searching for a, a place that I could call home one day, I found uh, Segera and uh, founded the Segera Conservancy. And uh, the Zeitz Mocha, um, tell me about that, and because that was really rooted in it for those for listeners who might not know, it's it's an amazing contemporary art museum in Cape Town, in a spectacular building, but with an amazing art collection, which I think isn't was entirely based on your own private collection. So, will you talk about sort of how that came about? Yeah, again, through my passion for Africa, and I. I traveling a lot as much as I could um, in, in Africa, you know, the various different countries, meeting different cultures, you know, I came across a lot of creative art, creativity and, 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 and got to love contemporary African art uh, and what it, what it stood for in its, in its, uh, in its diversity. And, uh, and I said, well, I don't understand why Africa doesn't really have an institution that uh, that you know could have an impact um, that would exhibit contemporary African art with uh, you know and 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 be become a platform for the incredible art that the continent and the diaspora uh, created uh, all day long, but the infrastructure wasn't quite there. Uh, obviously, you had you know good galleries uh, already in some parts of Africa, but I felt that the, the institution that could exhibit and become sort of a beacon for contemporary African art on the continent was still missing. Um, and, uh, and I had the fortune of meeting um, the V&A Waterfront and uh, the CEO, David Green, and we then started and partnered uh, with the same vision and with the same idea that they brought the building. I brought the collection, we jointly funded it and, uh, and we were able to establish the museum now almost six years ago. So. It was really born out of the passion. I never wanted to really be a collector for the sake of collecting. I, I, I started collecting with, with the idea and with the purpose of, you know, putting the collection uh, into, into, into some sort of an institution. I didn't think it would be as big as it ultimately became, but uh, uh, it's wonderful to see, you know, how, how, this, uh, how much impact the museum now has, not just on the continent, but for those who travel to Africa. Yeah. And do you still collect contemporary African art? Occasionally, yes. Uh, yes. And are there favorite places in, you mentioned other places where there are galleries. Have you had favorite um, places where you've gone over the years to discover contemporary African art? Or has it really been everywhere? West Africa, East Africa? Yeah, mostly East and Southern Africa. I would say a little bit Northern Africa too. Less so in West Africa. Very vibrant art scene uh, for sure. Um, but uh, haven't really had much time to travel there. I know a lot of artists there, but... You know, time is limited in the day. There's only so many places you can visit. But uh, but the, but what's wonderful to see is that there's just so much creativity and and so much extraordinary art on the continent uh, and beyond that uh, it's uh, and and that we were able and are able to contribute to to supporting these artists. I think that's kind of a dream come true. Yeah, it's amazing. So going back to Segera. You said you looked for 13 years for a place that could be home. Um, I'm guessing from what you just said, you looked mostly in East and Southern Africa. What 
ended up bringing you finally to Lycopia and and that particular what was a ranch I believe before you bought it. How did you get there and what did you think when you found it? Yeah, it's it, it's interesting, right? Because you you look and look and you look at different places and it just uh, it has to everything has to sort of your 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 heart and soul and and your mind needs to tell you at the same time this is it and uh, it's it's funny when i look at photos that i took the day i arrived i was like what i was i'm kind of looking back thinking i must have been crazy um because there was literally nothing there um it was a degraded cattle ranch um wildlife was you know very sparse um there was zero infrastructure there was an old lister generator from 1920 uh, that was sort of had one f uh, flickering light bulb at the end of it uh, powering sort of the the, the derelict house that uh, that was left um and um, so there wasn't there wasn't anything uh, really but what i saw is first the beauty of nature um seeing mount kenya rise in the morning uh, with the sunrise um uh, seeing you know the the open savanna uh, that this land has and then occasionally come stumbling across an elephant let alone a lion um and uh, meeting the people the communities and i just thought well this and this is a place that you know could come back to life uh, if you give nature a break and that that became the 20 plus years journey of really focusing first on giving nature and while well, uh, nature break taking down hundreds of miles of fences, building six schools, working with the communities and, uh, and uh, you know, securing, bringing safety and security to the place and create a, an engine uh, down the road uh, that would also inspire others. Because I felt that just like I got so inspired about Africa and it gave me so many ideas and so many things and, and, and positive memories that I felt that if I could only inspire a handful of people to do likewise, it would already be the effort. So the retreat was really a creation of on one side to long term showcase that sustainability and preserving nature uh, it can not just have a, a positive impact on nature and it, the lo local and people but it would also be something that could uh, house a, a business that could be built around sustainable principles which Segera is we had the first Segera retreat had the first full fully operated solar plant when we started there was no, no solar around uh, you know back then um and and we, we catch our own water i mean everything is as, as sustainable as it can be uh in, in 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 what we call the four c's of conservation community culture and commerce and uh you know and using it really as an engine to not just run this as a philanthropic endeavor forever um, but making sure that the, there's there's a business attached to it that, that could help finance all the ideas that we had and all the projects that we engaged in in order to continue to restore uh, the biodiversity of the place and and the natural beauty that it had, um, but that needed to be brought back to life. And and you've achieved all that. I'm curious because it is both a model of of the four C's, as you said, but it is also a hotel and it is also your part-time home. Um, did you know from the beginning that you were going, and it's not, when I say that for listeners who haven't been, it's not as though there's a hotel and then five miles down the road, there's your house. I mean, it's a very integrated place. And did you know from the beginning that you were going to open 
you know, either live part-time in, because uh, it's not, it's your house and a hotel at the same time. It's not, there's this, not the separation. And that's an interesting model because a lot of people don't, you know, don't want to share their own life in such a person. Yeah, I, I think sharing is, uh, is exactly what you should be doing, right? I mean, we, I'm not there 12 months of the year. Uh, so why would you have a house that is then empty for 10 months of the year. That doesn't make any sense in my mind, at least. So, and I, I love sharing, uh, which is why I support the Zeitzmoker Museum in Africa, not because I want art for myself on my private wall that nobody sees. I want to share. Uh, I think we, that, and the same applies to Segera. And it's not a hotel in a classic sense. You think of one big building and uh, and hotel rooms. No, it's it's separate individual private villas. And I said, whoever comes, should feel at home and uh, you know welcome from us as the homeowner so to speak um, but experience the same experience that that we experience as a family when we are there and and that's why we rent our house when when we are not there and that's why we decided not to have a separate infrastructure to the guests that come we share the same infrastructure uh, and i i just think that's the way to go uh, rather than having a big property with a big fence around it and not let anybody in i think that's the thinking of the past we have to make sure that we share the beauty and uh, and give everybody an opportunity to contribute uh, if they want to. Yeah, and I think you do an amazing job of of merging exactly that because you know even to me when you say it's villas that one can rent, that doesn't do justice to the inclusivity of being there. You really feel that you're in the home of people and and not just your home but the community that takes care of the place there is this sort of welcome into a family moment um and you have a bedroom that's in a villa that's part of that sort of family retreat i think retreat's a great word for it but there are not a ton of hospitality models that that have that same kind of commingling or sharing um, sort of feeling. Did you have anything in mind when you decided to build the house and and know that you were going to open it up to others? Well, thanks for saying what you're saying because you know the way you described is exactly how what I what we wanted to achieve, and it's it's great testament to uh, the team that's been on the ground has been working with me for from the beginning almost uh, to 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 actually you know make it all happen uh, and it, it takes a great great team it's it's this, it's the employees it's the staff it's it's everybody working there that brings Segera retreat and Segera to life every day uh, so you know my big thank you goes to the you know over 200 almost 220 people that are now working uh, at the property which you know grew from almost almost zero certainly from a tourism perspective um, the, it's interesting. There was an old, old farmhouse where we lived in, and that was the last thing that got renovated. Um, so we kind of lived in a, a pretty rundown, very old uh, farmhouse, and everything else was built around it. And then when that was done, we said, "Well, maybe now it's time to renovate our, our house and then open it up for guests." It would it wouldn't be guest comfortable enough to be included in the original uh retreat but uh, we eventually then renovated it and, and and it's now part of the whole uh the whole um whole setup and and what were the biggest challenges for you as obviously a successful entrepreneur but not a hotelier um not someone who had been in the traditional hospitality businesses what were sort of the surprises that got you along the way both good and bad of doing something so different from a business perspective 
Yeah, I kind of always pick the hard challenges. I, I'm afraid that's sort of me. Uh, I don't know why I'm constantly doing that. Uh, never pick the easy route out. I mean, it was sort of just like at Puma when the odds were against the 29-year-old to, to turn around a company that uh, had fallen into disrepair almost. Um, you know, I picked a place where everyone said, well, there is not enough wildlife. There is not enough landscape yet. Um, this solar how is that going to work there's not enough solar there everything off the grid how is that going to work uh, it's a place where no tourists would come and have never come historically and then try and do that as a high-end uh, luxury sustainable luxury resort there was kinds of all the all the boxes uh, that i wanted to tick didn't exist so that that was the challenge per se and but over the years you know the wildlife came back and it's extraordinary. I mean, every time I go, you see more wildlife, it blows your mind away. I might see a lion, might have seen a lion every six months or so. And now you see a lion every day. You see cheetah almost every day and leopard and, and elephants. I mean, it's just to see that is just uh, is incredible. Um, and, uh, and you know, and over time, guests started arriving. It, it took 10 years from zero guests uh, when you're waiting for somebody to show up to now being, you know, one of the top retreats certainly in africa if not in the world and so you know but it takes a great team to to achieve the, all of that and we have a great team on the ground that does that every day and and it takes patience i mean i'm, I'm curious about your thoughts around how you marketed it um because you know again for listeners who may not be aware when the lodge opened um kenya had gone through a period of you know, not a lot of tourism, and certainly it had gone from a, a period in the 60s of being sort of the ultimate place to go on safari to a period in the 80s where many people felt that there was, there was way too much mass tourism, there was a lot of corruption, there was, um, you know, some issues around crime. It was, it was not the beloved country for safari in Africa when you took this on. And over time, it, you know, I, I think in many ways, Segura has helped put Kenya back on the map for high-end travelers and frankly, hoteliers and investment has followed, I think, your example, because they've realized you can get a high-end traveler to choose Kenya over Botswana or, or Tanzania. And, and you were way ahead of the pack. So I, I'd be curious your thoughts on how that has changed over time and, and what you attribute that to. Well, I think what you said is exactly right, right? It was uh, sort of uh, mass tourism. And in fact, I came as a mass tourist, so I'm not saying best, mass tourism is a bad thing, right? If you, if, you know, going on safari is expensive and, 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 and everyone should see nature and wildlife. So there's a place for everything, uh, including tourism that, you know, everyone can afford. I think that's very important. It, this is a tourism and nature should not be an exclusive thing. It should be accessible to everybody, which is one of the problems why, you know, nature might not thrive in areas where it could, because, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't have access to it. Um, you know, and, and I think that's that's a mistake. But I felt that my biggest contribution could be to contribute to a higher end tourism that would have a low impact on nature, but would have an high, high impact through the visibility it creates and uh, as you said there was no high-end tourism at the time and I decided to put high-end tourism high-end tourism in a place where there was very little tourism at all 
uh, and nobody talked about uh, like Ipia at the time as a destination for tourism. As I said, most you know, folks in the hospitality business felt I was out of my mind to even think about this. But it, it everything takes if if you have a passion, if you have a vision, if you have a mission, uh, you just then need time. And thankfully, I had the resources to also sustain it. Um, and uh, you know, and then it, you could say it took fifteen years to get it to a place where I could say, you know, mission accomplished. And and it's great to see that, you know, we've attracted others around us to do likewise. And we were contributing to, you know, to the interest, uh, rising interest of tourism in Kenya. And and there's no better country to go, I think, uh, than going on safari in Kenya. And we also didn't want to contribute to this fast traveling tourism of, you know, hopping from one destination to the next and never really having time to settle down, which again comes back to uh, Segera being our home, right? We are not uh, island hopping from island to island, from from destination to destination, from resort to resort every two days. We want, there's so much to explore. And even if we spend, but when we spend months there, it never gets boring, but, but we want to make sure that also people take time to really settle down and enjoy uh, uh, the calmness and the beauty uh, of the communities of, of of the nature and don't just think of you know having to take the big five within 30 minutes uh, from between 6 and 6 30 in the morning but really just sort of immersing themselves into nature that's why we've built this place and not you know to just jump around from one place to another to tick boxes yeah no i, I so i'd love then that's a again, gets us right to the Zeitz Foundation. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about what inspired you to start that and then get into the four C's um, and explain a little bit more about why you chose them as the, these four pillars. Yeah, um, it's an interesting question. But when I was sitting on this ver veranda of this derelict house uh, back then, when after I bought uh, uh, the place, I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? <laughs> Very little to no experience in certainly not in tourism and uh, in, in rangeland conservation, but I brought in a few experts and we did, had a three-day workshop and uh, we came up with the concept of the four C's where we, that made a lot of sense. I'm sort of a bit of a conceptual thinker. This Everything has to first be clear in my mind before I uh, push the button and move something forward. And we were sitting about, okay, so what what do we need to accomplish for this to be successful? We need to conserve nature, right? Because without nature, they, they can't, you know, nobody's going to come. We need healthy communities. That's the second seed. The, co the communities in terms of employment, in terms of improving and helping, supporting their livelihood need to be an integral part of it because otherwise you can't be successful, uh, in my opinion. Culture is a very important element. There are incredible uh, diverse cultures in Kenya. Uh, and, you know, whether it's his, uh, ancient cultures or whether it's contemporary culture that evolves all the time, uh, culture is a very important aspect. And, and there's a lot of culture in, in Africa, in Kenya, uh, that needed to be, I believe, exhibited in, in different ways and not with a curio shop at the, or the, at, the, at, the, at the street, but something that really gets people immersed in, experience the culture. So culture was the third, third C and then there's commerce. You know, to 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 undertake such an endeavor while it's a long-term investment, at some point, the, the 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 finances need to be balanced, and you need to, in order to be able to continue to, to invest into it. Otherwise, it's always and forever philanthropic endeavor. So I said, look, let's let me give this. I have the fortune of a lot of 
being able to establish something that can be in philanthropic endeavor at least for 20 years. But after that, you need to have a business that helps finance some of those crazy ideas that we constantly come up with, which is where the, the commerce or the retreat comes into play. And that was the 4C, content, 4C concept or the philosophy of the 4Cs. And, uh, and I, I felt that there must be other like-minded people out there in the world that were trying to accomplish the same thing. So why don't we create an initiative that brings all of those folks around the world together? And that's how the long run was born, where we now you know, protect, preserve, what is it, over 24 million acres of, 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 of land and water globally around the world and where we come together, share best practice and, and learn from each other and, and grow a network and an influence in the private conservation sector because national parks alone uh, will not be enough to preserve our planet. We need private initiative, urgently more private initiative that works together uh, as complementing you know, public uh, uh, engagement in preserving nature and, and the long run is, is such a great organization. Uh, that does that on a daily basis and everyone does it individually through their respective properties but collectively we all support and live by the philosophy of the four c's and remind me johan when was um the long run established and how has it grown over time and how have you found the other people i had a yeah it's must what is it 12 years ago now um the maybe a little longer uh, when the idea maybe 14 years ago when the idea came up first um, and I had a researcher that helped me to look around uh, the world and, and scanning websites and you know looking at initiatives that other properties were promoting or conservancies were promoting and uh, we came up with a handful that I then called up individually and said, "Here, yeah, look I I'm, I'm this is the plan I, I need some I want to bring in people from around the world together uh, and I need some founding members and uh, thankfully the and I was able to travel to most of those founding members um, and that they all signed up almost on the spot and, and and that was it and then we started and over time developed the concept not from a, just a philosophy but into something that you could you could apply on on a daily basis into best practice um, and uh, and then it grew and grew over over the years and it became what it is today. Yeah, it's amazing. But another one of your initiatives with the Zeitz Foundation that I love is much closer to home at just at Segera. And that's the Rhino project that you've started with the all-female ranger unit. Um, I'd love to hear you sort of talk about why that's important. Um, you know, having women in this role in Africa? Well, um, if you think in our part of the world, you know, it was always male rangers that were securing the place. And I'm like, why is it all men? It doesn't make any sense. We have a 50-50 population. Why are women not brought into the fold, into the conservation of Segera? So we started, uh, thanks to Damien Mender, who... This uh, started Akashinga in Zimbabwe, uh, whom I had met uh, and uh, and support uh, um, and who supported me in this endeavor to bring you know a female range or to set up a female ranger unit in East Africa, the first one. Uh, we had a great trainer that that helped, um, and it was an all female ranger unit uh, that we trained and and continue to train. Because you know women need to be brought into the fold just like men do, and uh, and and that's. It was just kind of an unheard concept at the time that made the national news 
the president heard about it and and, and now you see other conservancies or, or it's not even a question anymore you know that that you bring in men and women into conservation and i i just believe in the power of women in this world if we had more women power the world would be a better place and i'm trying to be as diverse as 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 we can uh with uh, with our with the people that we hire within the uh, segera and within the foundation and that's why the women's ranger unit is you know such a great initiative because it made a point right that's like women should be part of the conservation world uh including protecting uh protecting wildlife and uh, and that led ultimately to the idea to say what is sort of the last big iconic species that we could bring into Segera and that led to the rhino initiative that we're currently working on uh, setting up the infrastructure to eventually bring in rhino into Segera but not just for the sake of having rhino on Segera but to actually help create a bigger ecosystem or sustain a bigger ecosystem where rhino could roam freely together with all the other species uh, that that are living uh, in that part of the world um, and to preserve a big chunk of big land uh, um, that could preserve biodiversity for future generations so it's 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 a means to an end with an iconic species like the rhino but at the same time uh, it is an umbrella species that protects everything around once you have rhino in 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 your property and so that's sort of the latest crazy endeavor that i've engaged in that we're working on well, it's also restoring where they're, you know, their original habitat. So it's not that you're introducing something to a place that they haven't been before. No, I mean, the, the rhinos used to, used to be there in abundance uh, not too long ago, but uh, we, we saw a, a, a terrible decline in the rhino, black rhino population, in particular in, in, in Kenya, throughout Africa, so that it became in uh, almost extinct and uh, and it's certainly still very endangered so preserving an iconic species is uh, is important but with it you're preserving the whole biodiversity that comes with it yeah now i know you you mentioned being sort of an iconoclast you don't define luxury the same way that everybody does i'd love to hear sort of how you think about it both in general but then also in tourism yeah, I mean, for me, it's luxury having time with my family and in, in being in nature and, and and really just sort of uh, breathing nature and seeing nature uh, in, you know, with my family around me. So whenever we get a chance to go to Kenya or to be in nature in America, we do that. I mean, this weekend, we're going to see the wolves here in uh, in in America and uh, over Christmas we'll be back in Segera and we you know we get the kids up in the morning and go on a pajama game drive and so that's kind of the highlights of my luxurious day that I, I have time with my family and and can enjoy nature. I love a pajama game drive I've never heard that expression before so what is your hope for um you know tourism in Africa in general but in you know in the whole world Segera, as you mentioned, is is a model of how tourism, whether luxury or mass, can impact nature and community and culture for the better. How are you? How do you see that spreading? Well, for me, tourism is an incredible industry that has the opportunity to preserve and restore nature, uh, and and. Uh, contribute to the livelihoods of the local communities um which comes back to the you know whole concept of the four c's 
if you create win-wins for people, planet, and profit, uh, that's when uh, you know that you are successful. And tourism has the unique opportunity to inspire. You know, we are at our best when we are in our on vacation, on holiday, and and have time to relax. Right? That's that's sort of the reward of working hard. But uh, while doing that, uh, you can actually contribute to sustaining our planet and sustaining or giving uh, jobs to people that uh, might in remote areas of the world never have an opportunity to work in, in a business. So I just believe in tourism as one of the uh, very important industries to contribute to all of that. And we have to take this responsibility very seriously. Well, you, you've done that beautifully, and, and thank you for leading by example. Uh, so last question, Joachim, what would you say the, the greatest gift of travel is or greatest lesson that you may have learned from it or one can take from it? The lesson is, is that when you, you know, it brought me the destruction that I saw while traveling the world that uh, we leave behind led me to ultimately become somebody who says, I want to preserve nature uh, and I want to be part of the preservation of it. So that lesson I learned, uh, seeing how beauty can be destroyed very quickly, how nature can get destroyed very quickly if you don't care for it. That's sort of the one lesson I've learned by traveling to beautiful places that were no longer 10 years later or that became something very special, just like Segera has and many other places around the world, if you preserved it, if you really cared for it. And uh, and I think that's the sort of the one lesson that I learned in addition to that everyone really can make a difference. Uh, how you spend your money uh, is how you can make a difference and everybody can make a difference. Uh, and, and I think we all have that responsibility to make a positive impact on the planet and on on its people as well. So that's a responsibility, but that's a huge opportunity and that's very inspiring. And if you look at travel as a gift that you're giving to your children, what do you think it, it you are giving to them by exposing them? I I think, you know, experience and being in 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 close proximity and 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 living nature i think is the best gift for a child and growing up in nature i said i what i want is bush babies uh, kids that grow up in the bush and, and know their way around that's the greatest gift we can give them together with some education but education in by being in nature is probably the best education you can get in life so i assume most of your family travel is in nature as you said sure is yes well thank you so so much Huge thanks to Jochen Zeitz for joining me today. I hope you have the chance to stay at Segera someday and experience the magic firsthand. To learn more about the Zeitz Foundation, follow Zeitz, that's Z-E-I-T-Z Foundation on Instagram. Coming up on Passport to Everywhere, I'll be sharing my tips for how to pack for safari. We'll be right back. Share the show. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Streaming now on all podcast platforms. The journey continues. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. I've been lucky to go on safari dozens of times and even published a book a few years ago called Safari Style on the Exceptional Lodges and Camps of Africa. Jochen Zeitz's Segera Treat is featured in it. All to say that I've packed for many safaris many times, and there is a way to do it. So I'm going to share some of my experience. First rule to remember is that less is more, and laundry is easily done. Every camp has them, and most can do it in less than 24 hours. 
Next, the right luggage is essential. You should pack in a soft, weather-resistant duffel bag, as you'll most likely be taking charter flights in bush planes, and there are strict luggage limits of no more than 33 pounds per passenger. Bags may need to be stuffed under seats or in small holds, and we have a list on our site of some of the companies that sell soft-sided duffel bags that are perfect and the right size for going in these smaller planes. You will be allowed one carry-on. I suggest a backpack that fits your toiletries and camera equipment, and you're never going to want to check those. As there's no reason to dress up, even for dinner, in the fanciest lodges, and laundry is done every day at the camps, you only need to pack comfortable clothes for the bush. Safari outfits in khaki colors may seem cliche, but they are actually very practical. They don't show dirt, don't stand out in the bush, and they keep you cool, protected from the sun, and from tsetse flies. So stick to beige. Next, you should leave valuable jewelry at home. You can honestly stick to the bare bones. You'll need a few pairs of light cotton pants. They should be comfortable, and they shouldn't show dirt or wrinkle. Sometimes you can buy them with SPF or bug protection in them. Any kind of khakis or cargo pants will do, though. Note, though, it's important that you don't wear camouflage prints, as those are only worn by many of the military in African countries, and it's actually illegal to wear them as a citizen. Some like to have pants that zip off as shorts on safari, but not practical to bring skirts, even in the evenings because of bugs. Of course, you'll need some shirts. I tend to prefer button-down style because they breathe and they provide good sun cover and work day or night. But make sure they're comfortable and easy to wash and protect you from bugs and sun. On our site, we actually list some companies that include lines that are treated with sun protection and bug repellent right within the fabric. Of course, you'll need a jacket, and a safari jacket is actually, again, not cliche, but really practical because it has lots of pockets. If you don't want to do that in warmer months, a photographer or a fishing vest is a good thing to have because you can keep lens caps, sunglasses, memory cards, gloves, bug spray, lip balm, sunscreen, wipes, any of those kinds of things on your person. So having a durable jacket that doesn't show dust and has lots of pockets, but that you can layer underneath is really useful. Also, depending on the season when you are traveling, you're going to have cold mornings and nights. Early mornings and early evenings are when the game viewing is best. So you're going to be out when it can be chilly. So it's wise to bring layers of capoline and fleece so that you can remove as the day warms up, as well as a great scarf. Another accessory you must have is a hat. A wide brim sun hat is best with a tie so that it doesn't blow off on game drives or boat rides, but you want it to also cover your neck and ears, which baseball caps don't. In colder months, it's also advised to have a warm hat and gloves for the mornings and evenings, and you can buy ones that work with your iPhone. So again, I suggest looking into those. Otherwise, you need just the basics, things like a few pairs of underwear, a great pair of comfortable hiking shoes, sandals for walking around the pool, a few pairs of socks, a workout outfit that can maybe double as pajamas, yoga pants, and long sleeve t-shirt if you want. If you think your lodges are going to have pools, you should bring a bathing suit and some kind of cover-up. Other small things that I found really useful to bring is... Definitely, as I said, cameras, multiple lenses. Some of the camps sometimes now rent lenses, so it's worth looking into that. You definitely want to bring extra batteries, and you want to bring extra memory cards. 
an extra pair of sunglasses because you'll need those every single day, bug spray, binoculars, small journal if you like, and again, less is more. You really don't need that much. You need the essentials to be comfortable for a day out in the wild with a changing temperature, and you need to be protected from bugs and sun and to blend in. Your laundry will be done. Your luggage needs to be compact. So follow a packing list and be true to it. You can find them on our website and others. But remember, you don't really need more than the bare essentials to have you comfortable for a day out in the wild, protected from sun and bugs. So really and truly, the most important thing to bear in mind when packing for a safari is follow a list. We've got one on our website and less is more. Don't overdo it. You will regret having to keep track of extra things and you could be overweight on some of the planes. Thank you for tuning in to learn more about Yoken Zeit's incredible life. If you want to learn more about Kenya, head to indigare.com and check out our insider guide to the country. And be sure to check out all of our safari planning tips. They're also on the site. Next week, I'll be speaking with author Francis Mays, who wrote Under the Tuscan Sun, as well as four other bestsellers. We'll explore the magnificence of Italy and how she restored a 200-year-old farmhouse into the legendary Villa Bramasole. Thanks again for joining me this week. The adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms and anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at, at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I N D A G A R E. Send us your questions about travel, passport at SiriusXM.com. Or call us at 646 535 7297.